Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 49. Therefore, Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found, the, found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared Dan, to Daniel, whose name was Belteshar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet, its feet, excuse me, its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, whenever they dwell, the, excuse me, children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over all of them. You are the head of gold. Another king inferior, excuse me, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw that, excuse me, uh, that iron mixed with, with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Not a lot of time left for the sermon. Robin, thank you for reading such a lengthy passage. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 2 as we come before the Lord in prayer together. God, we are thankful this morning for the book of Daniel and for the ways in which you have used it to encourage your people for centuries and millennia, and we ask that you would do that in our midst this morning, that in these words we would be reminded that you are sovereign that you reign and that that is for our good and that we can rejoice in you no matter what calamity we endure in this life. We pray these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. In the early 1930s, when the Nazi party was surging to power in Germany, a young pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer began to speak out about his concerns for the direction that his country was headed. He was critical of the Nazi party and seriously concerned with what he saw happening in the German church, which was becoming more and more aligned with Nazi leadership and its principles. Then in 1933, when Hitler was appointed the Chancellor of Germany, Bonhoeffer gave a radio address denouncing the decision and warning about the dangers of continuing down this path. Mid-speech, the broadcast was cut off. The radio went silent. But in the months that followed... Bonhoeffer became the most prominent Christian condemning the persecution of the Jews, which was happening in Germany. He lost his job, he was banned from public speaking, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before his draft notice came in the mail and he would be forced to serve in the army for Germany. So when an opportunity came to escape and flee to the United States, he left Germany thinking that he would never return. But instead, he was only in the United States for two weeks before he left to go back and continue his work with the church in Germany. 
He led an underground seminary for pastors who understood that the gospel is antithetical to these Nazi principles, which had just taken his nation by storm. And that is the time that he wrote the little book that we handed out a few weeks ago called Life Together. In the end, his decision to return to Germany and continue his work there cost him his life. A close friend who had urged him to stay in the United States later wrote that he was determined to obey God and was sure that he was doing so in deciding to return to Germany and also that he knew that the consequences of his obedience were God's business. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew that he was walking into danger. He knew that he was risking his life every single day that he lived in Germany, that every time he spoke out against Hitler, he put himself in even greater danger. Now, though, his courage stands as a testimony to the church and its calling at all times to stand for the truth, even when doing so comes at great risk. We've already seen that commitment in the book of Daniel, and here in chapter 2, we see it again. Daniel is a young man taken captive from his home in Jerusalem and is now living in Babylon under the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar. He has already demonstrated his courage and resiliency, which owe not to his strength, but to God's promise to preserve his people. Last week, Pastor Bruce preached through the first half of chapter 2, which began with the king of Babylon having a strange and troubling dream. He doesn't know what to make of it, so he sends for the wisest men in his kingdom, the people who are most qualified to help him. These magicians and astrologers and enchanters have spent their lives learning about the unseen spiritual realm, and so Nebuchadnezzar looks to them to sort out the meaning of this dream. Today, we might ask a therapist or a psychiatrist to help us understand a troubling or recurring dream, because we understand that our dreams are not much more than a glimpse into our own subconsciousness. But in antiquity, dreams were a very serious matter. Often, in the Old Testament, God communicated with His people through dreams and visions, among lots of other methods. But according to the author of Hebrews, even though God has spoken to His people in lots of different ways in the past, now He has spoken to us through His Son, whose Word is preserved for us in Scripture. So I'm not saying that God couldn't speak to any one of us through a dream, but the good news for us is that we don't have to wait for that to happen because His Word for you was delivered in person. But before the life of Christ and the assembly of the canon of Scripture, things were different. And that is the case here in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar does not know what's going on, but he seems to know that it is important. He knows that this is no ordinary dream. So he takes it very seriously. He wants to understand it, and so he devises a plan to get the correct interpretation of this dream. He tells the magicians and the astrologers that have assembled that they must first describe to him the dream and its details, and that only when they've done that correctly will they be allowed to offer any interpretation of it, because he wants the truth, not a guess. And if these guys claim to have some divinely inspired wisdom of some sort, then they ought to be able to pass this test quite easily, but they can't do it. They tell him there isn't a man alive who could meet this demand because only the gods, they say, can reveal this mystery, and their dwelling is not with flesh. The king is enraged by their answer. He's clearly troubled by what he's seen in this vision, and he is desperate to understand it. And now he's seen that these advisors of his are worthless. 
that they have no special revelation or divinely imparted wisdom, that they are hacks and frauds. Even though they wear the costume of wise men who can discern the voice of the gods, they are frauds. And to his credit, Nebuchadnezzar is sincere in his search for the truth here, something he now realizes he's not going to be able to get from these guys. When the magicians and enchanters arrived, they announced, O king, live forever, in verse 3. It's a sign to us that they were really only there to say what they thought the king wanted to hear, to flatter him and fawn over him because they thought that that would work to their advantage. But Nebuchadnezzar only wants the truth, and now he's seen he's not going to get it from these guys, and so he gives the order to have all the wise men of Babylon executed. And that's when Daniel comes into the story. He and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are advisors to the king, and that means that they are part of the group that has just received a death sentence. When the executioner shows up at Daniel's door, it is Arioch, who Daniel made friends with back in chapter 1, because the Lord gave him favor in the eyes of Arioch. So Daniel asks, what is happening? And Arioch explains that the king has had a dream, and no one is able to interpret it, so he's clearing the slate of his worthless advisors. We might expect that having an executioner show up at his door, Daniel would panic for a moment. But for the second time in this book, we see that he is cool under pressure. He asks Arioch to bring him before the king so that he can give the interpretation that no one else could. It's worth noting that at this point, Daniel knows nothing about the dream itself, only that the king has had a dream. But he knows that God is the one who reveals mysteries. If Nebuchadnezzar wants the truth, then there is only one place to turn, and Daniel knows the way. So he prays for mercy, and in verse 19, God reveals to Daniel the mystery that has been troubling the king to the point that he has sentenced every one of his advisors to death. But we see in the second half of this chapter that Daniel now knows that the news he has for this murderous king is not good news. He must be the one to confirm Nebuchadnezzar's deepest fears, to tell him that Babylon is going to fall. In verse 25, Daniel is brought before the king, and Arioch announces, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. It's an interesting way to spin things. He is anxious to claim some of the credit. He makes it sound like he was tirelessly searching for someone who could help the king, when in truth, he only came to Daniel's home to execute him. It was Daniel who had the idea to go to the king, not Arioch's, even though Arioch is hoping that he gets rewarded for it. Daniel, however, is quick to do just the opposite. He says in verses 27 and 28 that the astrologers and magicians were right, that no man can show the king the mystery that he has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Unlike Arioch, Daniel is not scheming for a reward or for credit. He is not motivated by applause that will eventually come when the king honors him at the end of the chapter. Only that Nebuchadnezzar would know that it is God and God alone who reveals the truth. Whereas Arioch was scheming to get credit, Daniel is quick to deflect the honor that might have been his toward God. 
Nebuchadnezzar, though, was evidently skeptical of Daniel. He's a teenager, a captive, a servant of a god from some far-flung backwater in the edge of the empire. Unlike the other advisors who have been dismissed, Daniel did not have the sort of resume that inspired very much confidence. So he asks in verse 26, are you able to make known the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel must pass the test that the others have failed, but Daniel is confident, not in himself, but in God. And he says in verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel knows that he is not the source of the wisdom that Nebuchadnezzar seeks. He agrees with these pagan enchanters and magicians that no living man can answer the king's questions, but he knows the God who can. There's an important lesson for us here in Daniel's humility. God's people, both in captivity in the ancient Near East and living in Massachusetts in the 21st century, are called to testify to what we know to be true. Just as ancient Israel was called to be a light to the nations, to shine with the radiance of God's glory into the darkness of the world around them, the global church today has been given the same calling. Pastor Bruce explained to us last week from the first half of this chapter that there is one source of truth, and it is God Himself. That seems to be the point of this whole portion of the book of Daniel. It asks and answers Who is the one who reveals mysteries? A phrase used five times in this chapter. Additionally, the word for show comes up nine times, and the word for make known comes up 12 times. The point that Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to realize, along with anyone reading this story after the fact, is that God is the source and foundation of all that is true. He makes known what was unknown, He holds all wisdom and knowledge, and He is truth Himself. So God's people, therefore, are only vessels of the truth, not its creators, not its makers. So Daniel is quick to deflect the credit that Arioch was hoping to get for himself. This is both a humbling thing and an encouragement. Reflecting on this truth deflates our pride by reminding us of something that Daniel kept in mind at every turn, that whatever Wisdom or knowledge that we possess is certainly not a reason to boast or think more highly of ourselves. Apart from the grace of God to reveal mysteries, we would all be like Nebuchadnezzar, grasping around desperately for answers to our fears and our anxieties. Like him, we would be powerless and disappointed by the frauds who claim wisdom of their own. In Daniel's story, we remember the words of Proverbs 2, which declared that the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Arioch was being ridiculous when he tried to claim credit for finding Daniel. We can see that. It would be like the Amazon delivery man claiming credit for the book that I read that helped me understand this passage. It doesn't make any sense for Arioch to claim this credit. And it is just as ridiculous when anyone, any one of us, feels superior or proud because we have a better better handle on the gospel than someone else, a better, richer theological understanding than someone else might have. It is just as ridiculous as Arioch's attempt to claim some credit here. I once heard someone say that preaching is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found food. The difference between Daniel and Arioch in this passage makes an important point. It is God 
who reveals mysteries. It is God who bestows wisdom by his grace, and therefore it is God who is glorified when he does so. This is a humbling thing, but it is also an encouragement to us. Because Daniel wasn't the one who had to sort out what the king's dream meant. It wasn't up to him. All he was responsible to do was faithfully convey what God had revealed. This is a great comfort to me as a pastor, and I think should be to every Christian. When I stand up here to preach, it is not because I am smarter or wiser than any of you. Everyone in this room knows that that's not the case. It is God's wisdom that I proclaim and in which we together are blessed. That's why I love expository preaching, which is what we do here at Westgate. It's a core commitment of ours because it lifts a great burden from my shoulders. I don't have to be clever or innovative. I just have to be devoted to Scripture. In the same way, I think many Christians often feel intimidated to share the gospel with neighbors, coworkers, or friends because we fear that we will be asked questions that we're not sure how we would answer. We play out conversations in our minds and wonder how we would respond or what we would say if someone we're sharing the gospel with asks a question about a particular doctrinal issue we don't really understand all that well, or some historical detail we don't know much about, or some scandal in the modern church that we are just as bothered by as they are. So because we think we don't have all the answers, we often say nothing at all, don't we? But this passage encourages us by demonstrating that all wisdom and knowledge, all of it, the entire corpus of understanding of all the things that we might know about what it means to know Jesus and follow him is too great a burden for any of us to bear. It is God who speaks and reveals what is hidden and who breathes life and faith where there was none. This is his work, not ours. And this passage helps us to remember that our job is to faithfully and carefully convey what we know to be true, what he has revealed. This is Daniel's focus as he launches into his description of the dream that the king had, in which Nebuchadnezzar saw an immense statue. Daniel explains in verse 31 that it was mighty and of exceeding brightness, and its appearance was frightening. And it was made up of different materials, beginning with gold at the bottom, or at the top rather, and then silver and bronze and iron, and then at the bottom, their feet were made with iron mixed with clay. But then in this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, he saw a stone cut from the ground by some divine power. And then that stone strikes the statue on the feet and the whole thing crumbles from the top to the bottom, breaking into pieces so small that they are a fine dust that is carried away on the wind. And in its place, the stone that broke it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth and made the statue that used to stand there look tiny and insignificant by comparison. It's a strange dream, for sure. And it's clear why Nebuchadnezzar was so distressed by it. It is a vision of violence and destruction, of the absolute annihilation of something that once struck fear into the hearts of those who saw it. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar saw himself in the statue's golden face, which Daniel will shortly confirm represents Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Maybe that is why he went to such great lengths to figure out what it all meant. He feared that this was a glimpse of his own future, his own destruction. For everyone else in Babylon, I think that would have been a pretty far-fetched idea. 
Babylon, after all, was the greatest military force the world had ever seen. It was obscenely wealthy, and it was home to countless brilliant thinkers in fields ranging from mathematics and architecture to agriculture and literature. It was an incredibly advanced civilization. Evidently, it was also during this time that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were constructed, a feat of engineering that made it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Babylon and its king appeared to everyone to be beyond rivalry with any other kingdom that might rise up afterward. It was probably difficult for anyone to imagine a world in which Babylon was just a speck of dust on the timeline of history. Just as it is difficult for us to imagine that the same is true for America. Eventually, it will be a speck of dust on the timeline of history. But Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, was afraid and uncertain. Where everybody else saw an indomitable kingdom and an unstoppable force, he seems less certain. Whether he was already or he has become uncertain since he had this dream, he is definitely distressed and maybe aware that actually he is weaker than he appears. And ultimately, that is a good realization for Nebuchadnezzar to have. By the end of the chapter, he will be declaring Daniel's God to be the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now, we should clarify, that doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar is suddenly a monotheist who has abandoned his idols and converted to Judaism. The chapters ahead will make clear how far from God he still is. But it was God's grace that shattered Nebuchadnezzar's pride in the assumption that he was in control. And in our own lives and the lives of those around us, he does the same thing. He graciously ordains circumstances and events that reveal to us in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar finally realized that we are not in control. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world, yet with one dream, he recognizes that everything might change in a moment, and all the power and intellect and money in the world could not stop it. We are prone to the same assumptions that Nebuchadnezzar was. In the modern world that we live in, Similar to ancient Babylon, we've made incredible strides in being able to anticipate and respond to any illness or accident or disaster that we think might come into our lives. We're so good at it, in fact, that we've gradually become more and more convinced that we are in control and that we can overcome whatever happens. But like it was for Nebuchadnezzar, that assumption is so easily shattered, isn't it? Often when disaster strikes in our lives. And it's then that we realize that despite our best efforts, we are not actually in control of anything at all. And as hard as it is to endure learning that lesson, it is a good thing. Because it drives us to cling to the one who is actually in control. Even though we are tempted to think of ourselves as kings over our lives, in truth, we are weak. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, as Daniel explains, is all about kingdoms. Babylon is at the top, but it won't be there forever. It's represented by the golden head, and Nebuchadnezzar has been placed there by God himself, who raised him up to serve his purposes. He was given immense power, and into his hand, Daniel says, God has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the authority to rule over them all. It's language that echoes God's word to Adam back in Genesis 1 which indicates 
both that it is a vast amount of authority and power, and also that it is subordinate to the authority of God. Nebuchadnezzar is not the boss here. Even though he has a throne and lots of people listen to what he has to say, he is God's servant, and he has been granted his position for a season. There is nothing inherently powerful or mighty about Nebuchadnezzar. He's just the man that God has appointed to carry out his purposes. And on top of that, Daniel says, his reign will be swept away just as swiftly as it came into being. Another kingdom will come afterward, he says, and then another and another. Each part of the statue represents a different empire in succession. Lots of ink has been spilled over the years in an attempt to interpret these layers. They seem to line up historically with the Babylonian Empire at the top, and then the Persian Empire in the middle, and then the Greek Empire, you know, down a little further, and then under that, represented by unyielding iron, the Roman Empire. And that may be what these layers represent. I'm inclined to that position, but Daniel only specifies that the golden head represents Babylon, and that it will first be replaced and then ultimately swept away into history like dust with all of the other kingdoms in the statue. And that afterward, a stone appointed by some divine power will grow into a mountain that will stand forever. The contrast is significant. These other kingdoms are made from various materials of decreasing value but increasing strength. The iron at the bottom appears unbreakable. It crushes everything that came before it, it says, apart from the fact that there is some clay mixed in there at the bottom. The statue strikes fear into Nebuchadnezzar's heart, just as the strength of each of these empires did to their subjects. They appeared unstoppable, and perhaps they would be, were it not for the small stone that strikes them and causes them to crumble. Unlike the statue, the stone is common and nondescript. We're not told what kind of material it is. It's just a stone. It is not precious, and it does not make anyone afraid. It's just a stone but it is the rock of the heavenly kingdom. Even though it appears small and insignificant, it crushes the statue and then supersedes it. And Daniel says that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." It will shatter every earthly power and grow to cover the whole world. It will be the kingdom that Babylon was pretending to be, and Persia and Greece and Rome were all pretending to be. Nebuchadnezzar and his court, the people that surround him, his sycophantic supporters, were probably not accustomed to this sort of talk. He was used to being surrounded by yes-men who arrive with declarations of, O king, live forever. But now Daniel, the teenager from Judah, is standing before him telling him not only that the God of Judah is the one who has granted Nebuchadnezzar his power for a season, but that it will soon be ripped away and he will be cast down. It's the sort of thing that might have easily landed Daniel back in the hands of an executioner. But as it turns out, Nebuchadnezzar was glad to have an answer to his question, so glad that rather than sending Daniel to the gallows, he gives him a promotion. Daniel has proved himself to be the sort of, untru- or the, the sort of trustworthy advisor that Nebuchadnezzar has suddenly found himself in need of. So by the end of the chapter, there has been a complete reversal of fortune for Daniel. 
from death sentence to the chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. It's probably not the outcome that anybody saw coming, least of all Daniel. But he did go into the throne, the throne room that day with utter confidence in the fact that God was the one in control of whatever would happen that day. He may still have been nervous about what would take place, but he was not afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. As he stepped into that room, he was the one person in the world who knew what was in that vision and what it confirmed about the king, about Babylon, and about God's rule over them both. He knew the truth, and his job was to proclaim it. There were times in our lives, in the lives of all of God's people, when speaking the truth is dangerous and costly. But Daniel helps us to keep things in perspective. Even though we don't live under the same circumstances that he did, there are some similarities. We live in a land that does not worship God or celebrate his word. Unlike Daniel, we know what was in the vision that he saw. We know who reigns over the world that we live in and who we are right to fear. We know that earthly powers will all crumble one day and that one kingdom will remain. And we know that the stone that breaks the kingdoms of this world into dust is the very Son of God whose kingdom is established not by the bloodshed of his rivals, but by his own. He is the king who gives up honor in exchange for the life of a servant, who loves his people, who loves you and me so perfectly that he dwells among us and calls us his friends. So our hope is not in our own strength or our intellect, it is in Christ. It takes courage to speak what is true. But Daniel was encouraged by the vision that God is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and over all the kings who would come after him. That he was working to establish an eternal kingdom and that we are encouraged to live with the same confidence and peace that we see here in Daniel chapter 2. For centuries, Christians have been looking to this book to be reminded that even in captivity and persecution and hardship, God is faithful. And we know that declaring His faithfulness, His goodness, His sovereignty, His wisdom, declaring the gospel and what we know to be true about who He is and what it means to follow Him, declaring what we know to be true about what it means to obey Him and why we should, declaring what we know to be true comes at a risk. For some, it means risking their very lives. But we remember that in Christ, God has established a kingdom which will never fall, which will never be destroyed, and will never be replaced. Even if now we live as Daniel did in a distant land full of troubles, we know that that kingdom is our home and our hope. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you this morning as the sovereign rule, ruler of all things and the fountain of all wisdom and truth. We turn to you, finding joy and courage in the sacrificial love of Christ for us, the rock who has struck the powers of this world and shattered them to dust. And because that is true, we can proclaim what is true without fear. We pray that you would make us bold and winsome and gracious, confident in your love and your grace for us. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.